MRAP snack. We've chatted about atrial fibrillation a number of times in the past, and the last was back in March 2020 when we did a deep dive with Dr. Claire at Zema. And that was on the approach that she takes based on the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, or CAPE, updates. We're back talking about atrial fibrillation again because the same group released an update in August 2021, mainly based around an algorithm or a way to think about this, a flow diagram of how to think through these cases. And we're back here with Susie Demeester to go through that checklist, through that algorithm. Susie, welcome back. Dr. Susie Demeester. Thanks as always for having me, Swami. All right, let's get into that checklist because it really is well put together. I think a lot of us looked at this and said, this is what I've wanted for so long. And it breaks atrial fibrillation really down into four pieces. A, for assessment and risk stratification, B, for rate or rhythm control, C, for stroke prevention, and then D, for disposition and follow-up. A, assessment. Let's start with the assessment and risk stratification. Step one is to take that patient with rapid AFib or flutter and make sure it's not a secondary issue. It's not secondary to a medical cause. Like the patient has chronic AFib and they're septic, and so now they're tachycardic. If it's due to an underlying medical cause, treat the underlying medical issue. Ignore the rapid AFib flutter because it's just that patient's sinus tachycardia. If it's not due to a secondary cause, then they ask you to determine if the patient is stable or unstable. And Susie, this is the first place where I think we sometimes aren't quite sure what that means. I mean, if the patient's hypotensive, we know that's unstable. But what do we really mean by stable, unstable in this sense? Their definition of unstable is a good one. Patients who are hypotensive, those with cardiac ischemia, and those with acute heart failure. And the treatment for these is going to be one word, electricity. But seriously, just shock at the highest level, done. The authors do mention that if the AFib is over 48 hours, you could consider a trial of rate control. But circling back to something you mentioned, Swami, and I can't emphasize the importance of searching for that underlying cause enough. So treating, for example, a septic patient with RVR with a rate controlling agent is not only useless, it's also really dangerous. Remember, AFib is often the symptom and not the primary reason the patient presents to the ED. Great reminders in there. If they're unstable, hypotensive, cardiac ischemia, go ahead and shock the patient. You can consider rate-controlling agents if you think it's been going on for more than 48 hours. What if the patient is stable? Where do we go from there? In keeping with this checklist, we can again keep it simple. We have two options, and those are going to be rate control or rhythm control. When we're talking rate control, first line is going to be a calcium channel blocker, such as diltiazem, or a beta blocker, such as metoprolol. Second line is digoxin and Quick note, if the patient has Wolf-Parkinson-White, we're going to consider urgent cardioversion or procainamide. We also have the option of rhythm control, and this is where people get really confused. Patients are candidates for rhythm control if they have already been on anticoagulation for three weeks, if they're not on anticoagulation, and they have no previous history of stroke or valvular heart disease, then you can consider rhythm control and that's going to be with either procainamide, most commonly, or cardioversion. If the onset was less than 12 hours, or if they have a CHADS-2 VAS score less than 2, so 0 or 1, with onset under 48 hours, or 
if there is no thrombus on a transesophageal echo. B, rate control. So the rhythm control group, we do have to think a little bit about it. If they've been on long-term anticoagulation, we can convert them. If they're less than 12 hours, we can convert them. If they're 12 to 48 hours, but less than two risk factors, we can consider conversion. And of course, the magical land where you can get a TEE on that patient emergently, and then you can cardiovert them if they have no clot. If you fit into one of those groups, great, we're gonna go to rhythm control. If they don't have one of those, then you're gonna go towards rate control. Let's talk about the rhythm control itself because they do say, oh, you could use procainamide or you could use electricity. Where do you go, Susie? Do you go right to electricity or do you try a drug first? I go to electricity. It's so easy. I like that the authors mention avoid starting at a low level. I always go to the max. I don't think many of us in the U.S. are starting with procainamide, honestly. I think part of this is kind of how we culturally have practiced. It doesn't seem as available at my hospital. We need pharmacy verification. And I think in the end, it requires more nursing, which especially given the current time seems like a barrier to using this medication. I think that's a pretty fair assessment of how we should be going through this. And I like going to electricity first too, but sometimes I will use procainamide, especially if the patient is really kind of nervous about the idea of electricity or they've heard about medications or in the patient who's got these other episodes of AFib in the past and they've gotten a medication, then I might use procainamide first before going to electricity. And I completely agree that once you decide to go to electricity, just get it up the joules, up to that max number. I've asked patients before who've been cardioverted multiple times, does 100 hurt less than 150 or 200? And they say, no, nope, it feels the same to me, doc. But you know what does hurt? When I get 100 and then 150 and then 200. So getting shocked three times is worse than getting shocked once at 200. So I like that approach. Let's go for the max. Let's go for it right away. Take it to the limit. C. Stroke prevention. The next part of this algorithm, this checklist that they go into is stroke prevention. That's the C. And this used to be an area, Susie, that I think we kind of felt wasn't our problem. My problem is either rate control them and pass them off to the inpatient team or rhythm control them and pass them off to the outpatient team. But we didn't really think about that stroke prevention. Dr. Edzema really spent a lot of time talking about why this is so important. What were the final wrecks from CAPE in terms of stroke prevention? Yep. Stroke is, again, the real reason we should care about atrial fibrillation. So focus on that even in your discussions with patients. For discharge, these authors keep it really simple. They recommend anticoagulation with a direct oral anticoagulant over warfarin if the patient has a CHADS 2 VAS score greater than zero. This is going to be an area of shared decision-making. It's a big deal to start these patients on medications, but if you're doing rhythm control in particular, these patients are at least going to require some sort of anticoagulation for a month. By that time, hopefully they've been able to follow up with a cardiologist or their primary care physician. I'll refer the listeners back to the checklist for dosing and a more in-depth description of full treatment guidelines. Really important for us to be focused on this because you're right, that stroke prevention is so critical. And while you might have that patient who can see their cardiologist the next day, Let's be honest, a lot of times these patients are being discharged home and it might be a little bit of time before they actually get there. But let me ask you a follow-up question. Let's say you've got that 20-year-old patient who comes in with palpitations, you find them to be an AFib, and when you talk to them, they say, oh yeah, you know, I was partying a little bit harder than I should have, I drank a little bit too much, maybe I had a little bit of cocaine. The patient either converts on their own or you cardiovert them, they're stable, they're in sinus, they're asymptomatic. Would you still anticoagulate that patient or would you defer? 
Probably not. But I think this would be another area where I would employ shared decision making. And honestly, a partying 20 year old may have a higher bleeding risk than that elderly patient. That's a really good point. And we're going to talk about some of this down the line when we talk about this procedure called the Watchman procedure. And we talk about how there are some people who you can tell them as much as you want to. Hey, you're on a blood thinner. Don't go around banging your head into stuff. And they're still going to do it. And I kind of think that 20-year-old men are in that group where they're going to bang their head into something, whether you like it or not, no matter how many times you tell them not to do it, it's still going to happen. D, disposition. Finally, let's get to the disposition piece of this checklist. I think we often look at these atrial fibrillation patients in the U.S. and say, oh, lay up, this guy's going to get admitted. But they don't all need to be admitted. So who needs to be admitted and who can go home? It's going to be those same patients we talked about earlier, those unstable patients, those with acute coronary syndrome, those with acute heart failure, and those patients who are very symptomatic. But that latter group is going to be really rare these days because we know that patients with acute AFib with RVR are likely going to convert in a couple days anyway. And this phenomenon was discussed in the September 2019 edition of EMA, where they reviewed a New England Journal of Medicine study by Plumakers. So we've got that patient. We've decided acute coronary syndrome isn't at play. They're not an acute heart failure. They're minimally symptomatic. We're ready to get that patient home. When do we need to schedule a follow-up? Is this a two-day follow-up? Is it a two-week follow-up? Is it a hope you follow up in the next couple months? When do we need to be making sure that happens? Ideally within a week, either with primary care or cardiology. One thing that they did not include in the checklist, but I think it's something really important to discuss with patients is the significant implications of being placed on an anticoagulant, specifically when the patient needs to return to the emergency department, as in with a head injury, and then of course, giving them some sort of printed medication reference. That's a really good point to make. I think patients who have been on anticoagulants for a while, they know anytime they bang their head, they come in, they get checked out. But these patients might not know that. And this is something that we are taking on as part of what we do for emergency care. So we need to make sure that we have that same type of advice that we're giving patients as the primary doctors or the cardiologists would be giving them in the office when they start them on these agents. Summary. And Susie, that really wraps up this whole checklist, this whole algorithm, those four major pieces. First is the assessment. Make sure that the AFib isn't a symptom of an underlying medical cause. If it is, take care of the medical cause. Don't worry so much about the AFib. The next thing is to determine whether the patient is eligible for rhythm control or if you're going to go with rate control. If they have been anticoagulated for more than three weeks, if they've onset less than 12 hours, or it's in the 12 to 48 hour window, but they've got less than two risk factors. Or again, if you've got that TEE without a clot, you can consider them for rhythm control. Otherwise, rate control either with a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker, depending on the patient, is the way to go. Remember that stroke prevention is the key here. You're going to want to do that assessment and determine if the patient needs to be on an anticoagulant. And when in doubt, you can discuss this either with their primary doctor or with the primary doc or cardiologist you're going to be sending the patient to follow up with. And then finally, remember, lots of these patients can go home as long as you have a safe follow-up plan in place. This might not work as well if you work in an inner city hospital where the patient isn't really plugged in, they don't have medical insurance. And in those cases, yeah, sometimes you have to bring the patient into observation to get all of that stuff set up. But a lot of these patients are going to be safe for discharge home as long as you do a good job with informing them of what to look out for, what to worry about with these medications. And if you can, talking to their doctor, the person they're going to be following up with to make sure that follow-up is in place. Susie, thanks for the fantastic review of this. We will have the diagram that Kate put together 
in our show notes for people to refer to. Next time you see an AFib patient, you decide that this is primarily a presentation for AFib, pull up the algorithm and use that to help to guide your management. Thanks as always for having me, Swami. And just remember, AFib, don't panic. You have time to refer to the checklist and go through this nice and simple algorithm. 